A few weeks ago, my husband Jeff and I, we took a, a hike along the shore of Lake Superior, the North Shore. We were in Crosby, Manitou State Park. The fecundity of early summer was visible through the moist green forest. It smelled alive. There was the delicate green of new growth on stately pine trees. Blooming strawberry plants lined the trail, unfurling ferns. Even the hoo-hoo-hoo of a great horned owl. Miles into our hike, we came along strange pieces of coarse, tan hair, and we wondered, what could this be? As we walked along, we realized we were seeing deer in varying stages of decay. Hair, hooves, and bone lined the trail. There was a strange beauty to this display. It seemed a natural part of the landscape, a realization, of course. Death is part of this rugged woodland, a reminder of the circle of life. It is not surprising that this was cause for me to reflect on my work as a hospice chaplain, to muse how death is part of my work week, part of the natural landscape, so to speak. While death still gives me great pause, it is an everyday occurrence. Death has become part one of my teachers, giving life lessons, a daily reminder of life's utter preciousness, an awareness of the impermanence of all things. Granted, it is a unique perspective I gain in this line of work. People often amaze that I work day in and day out, surrounded by death and the slow process of dying that is part of the hospice reality. I recognize how my colleagues and me are definitely called to this work. It is not a job one takes on a whim. Really, it is quite a privilege to journey with people in their last days. It is a sacred and vulnerable time. What is your relationship to death? This can be an uncomfortable question, to say the least. And most of us come, terms, come to terms with death only when we have to. Yet I would say the seeds of our death are planted at our birth. No living thing escapes death. It is our destiny. Shall I say our birthright? In a world of over 7 billion human beings, 154,000 people will die today. 56 million this year. The satirical paper, The Onion, got it right when it headlined, Death, Still 100%. <laughs> Despite medical advances and technology and healthier lifestyles, we still die. Why do we die, we ask? Because we are alive. Take a look around this sanctuary. Everyone here. Every single one of us will die, no exceptions. And we don't know when that day will come, but it will come. 
Recently, I spoke on the phone to a man whose mother had just entered our hospice program. He was struggling to accept the fact that his mother was ready to enter into hospice care. I gave him lots of support on the phone, and we set up a time for me to visit him and his mom the following day. It turned out his mother died overnight. Part of my job is to do condolence calls to the family, so I called the son the next day. Understandably, he was emotional and grieving, and the first thing he said to me was, I can't believe she is dead. His disbelief was poignant and palpable. Clearly, he had not been prepared for her death. I had never met them face to face, so after we hung up, I went to my computer, did my medical charting, and I decided to find out a little bit who this beloved mother was. Uh, from our phone conversations, I assumed she was a younger woman, perhaps in her 70s. But it, I was surprised to see that she was 97 years old. Her chart indicated that she had been ill and declining for years. While the son's love for his mother was endearing, I couldn't help but wonder how, with a 97-year-old mother, this dear, dear son was not more prepared for her death. The truth is, living in the United States in the 21st century, mainstream culture does not prepare us to face death. Mainstream culture emphasizes individualism and self-definition. It emphasizes comfort and success. In our youth-oriented world, death is a defeat, a tragedy. It is not surprising to observe that I have never witnessed a person die until I was 51 years old and working in a hospital. It used to be that experiences of death happened in the normal course of family home life. But in the United States, an estimated 80% of all deaths occur in hospitals or institutions. No wonder most of us are removed from actual dying. Scientific advances have meant more people die in institutions than ever before. And this often means cultural and religious approaches to dying are subordinated to the secular institutional setting. Modern medicine powerfully shapes the contemporary character of dying and death. And while there are cultural and individual exceptions, the majority of North Americans do not reflect on the meaning and reality of death. We either recoil from death or we sensationalize it. Mainstream culture has lost touch with the wisdom that death is a developmental stage, perhaps a final stage of growth. Or as the Tibetan Buddhists assert, death is a mirror in which all life is reflected. Death is a mirror in which all life is reflected. Engaging death awakens fear but also gratitude. We gain perspective and death somehow helps us to focus on the essence of things. I sometimes see this in the work I do with people in hospice. Ancient wisdom from the East and the West tells us death is better, a better truth that is not avoided, 
It is part of life. As modern people living in this death-denying culture, we might have to get creative to shift our consciousness. And so with this in mind, I invite you into this brief meditation from Robert Fulgham. He's the one who wrote, Everything I Needed to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. I invite you to sit back and take a deep breath. Close your eyes if you wish and picture in your mind's eye this photograph. A man is sitting on a folding chair in a cemetery. As a light rain fell and the sun shone at the same time on the first day of summer in 1994. If you were there standing close by, you would notice that the sod beneath his chair was laid down in a small square, suggesting it had been removed and then carefully replaced. The man owns the property upon which he sits. He has paid for the site, paid to have the ground dug up, to have a cement vault installed, and to have the ground restored. He is sitting on his own grave. Not because his death is imminent, he's in pretty good shape actually, and not because he was in a morbid state of mind. He was in a fine mood when the picture was taken. In fact, while sitting there on his own grave, he had one of the most affirmative afternoons of his life. Sitting for an afternoon on his own grave, he had one of those potent experiences when the large pattern of one's life is unexpectedly reviewed. <clears throat> the past, birth, childhood, adolescence, marriage, career, the present, and the future. He has confronted finitude, the limits of life. The fact of his own death lies before him and beneath him, raising the question of when and the where and the how of it. What shall he do with his life between now and then? When you are ready, take a deep breath and open your eyes. Indeed, what shall I do with my life between now and then? This is the essence of my message to you today, not to bring you down with a focus on death, but to lift up the urgency to live. Time here on earth is precious. Unless you believe in reincarnation, this is your one chance at embodiment, to walk on this green earth under this blue sky. When was the last time you slowed down enough to look at the large pattern of your life? Considered sitting on your own gravesite. We ignore the reality of death to our peril. We invite spiritual fragmentation and alienation from life on earth. My experience, and I bet yours too, has taught us that the circle of life includes all aspects of existence in its unabridged reality. The dead deer on the trail, 
the cries of a newborn baby, the wrinkles on your face, the clear blue water of a mountain lake, cancer when you're 35 years old. To be whole, we must deny nothing. There is deep, ancient wisdom here, and it's a paradox. Somehow, by keeping death in focus and embracing death's reality in our lives, we learn how to live more deeply. Resistance and denial is actually more painful, while surrender allows beauty, gratitude, and reverence. I think this is why I can do the hospice work. Sometimes, not always, there is a sense of living a life to the fullest, even as dying. This is the grace in dying, and a lesson for us living without a death date marked in our calendar. And in no way, and in no way, do I mean to romanticize death. Death is not pretty, it's not antiseptic. There is pain and there is suffering. When someone, someone dies that we love, it is painful and devastating and life-changing. Grief is difficult. Grief is a difficult journey, full of potholes. Yet we must allow space for the view of death as a source of meaning, to be transformed by it. Death, it may be argued, gives life a sense of timeliness and purpose a reason to number our days. I faced my own mortality, <laughs> I faced my own mortality, probably and my morality too, <laughs> 13 years ago when I was diagnosed with advanced endometrial cancer. I lived through some of the darkest moments of my life in that time, as anyone who has been through cancer treatment will tell you. But there were also times when I never felt more alive. I remember going for a walk around Lake Harriet and watching the sun dance on the water, and it just about melted my heart. The wind was blowing through the leaves on the trees, and that dance was like some cosmic thing I had never seen before in my life. And I knew what Moses meant by that burning bush. If I had not known better, I would have thought I was on drugs. Never had the earth seemed so beautiful and so alive. It was divine. I felt a deep connection to the earth that can be only described as mystical. I experienced gratitude flowing out of my heart and into my body. I believe my dance with death was a, da was a dance that tore my heart open. In this way, cancer was a gift that awakened me to life. It was a mirror that helped me to see life with new eyes. My husband Jeff and I used to joke that we married each other because he saw the glass half full and I saw the glass half empty. And we had sort of a balanced perspective between the two of us. But that changed when cancer filled my glass to overflowing. Now, don't worry, I'm not wishing cancer as a spiritual awakening for anybody. <laughs> but I do wish for you an awakened aliveness in your life 
and urgency. Jump into experience while you are alive, says Kabir. Cancer yelled in my ear, what are you waiting for? Someday you will die. If you don't break your ropes while you are alive, do you think ghosts will do it for you after? Says the poet. What is found now is found then. And I'm not talking about conjuring up your bucket list and then checking it off. Consumer society wants you to buy that sports car or take that dream vacation. What I'm talking about is more of an everyday approach of living an all-of-this-now approach that finds satisfaction in today, here, now. I'm reminded of a story by Buddhist and meditation teacher Stephen Levine. He writes, A friend who had been meditating for some time approached a Zen master recently who had arrived in this country. He asked the Roshi if he might study with him, to which the Roshi applied, are you prepared to die? And my friend shook his head in bewilderment and said, I didn't come here to die, I came here to study Zen. And the Roshi said, if you are not willing to die, you are not willing to let go into life. Come back when you are ready to enter directly, excluding nothing. Excluding nothing? Wow. If we are not open to anything that might happen, we narrow our lives to exclude the unacceptable. Are you prepared to face the unacceptable? Is death unacceptable to you? Are you prepared to face death unprepared? Consciously opening to the unacceptable opening to the little and big losses is a way to prepare for your own and your loved one's eventual death. While this opens you up to inevitable sorrow, sorrow you will experience, paradoxically, it, cre it creates an opening, <clears throat> excuse me, it creates an opening to a deep well of joy. The Buddhist tradition has much to teach us from this perspective. Resistance is futile, is at its crux. This is not about self-pitying nor rolling over and being a victim, but a practiced and nuanced approach to life. Trungpa Rinpoche, the great and controversial Tibetan Buddhist teacher, once gave a lecture titled, Death in Everyday Life. He teaches that we experience death all the time in the form of disappointment, in the forms of things not working out, in the form of how we experience everything that is always in the process of change. We grow in our consciousness and mindfulness in allowing these everyday death experiences to be our teacher, the cut on the finger, sending our child off to kindergarten, days in bed with the flu, the end of a marriage, being mindfully present to the impermanence of our lives. 
Buddhist nun Pema Chodron says, it isn't what happens to us that causes us to suffer. It is what we say to ourselves about what happens. By relaxing with the present moment, the basic message is that things have no lasting permanence. It is also about not running away from yourself. By living into the present moment and giving up the idea of the alternatives to the present moment that we tend to cling to, we can, as Chodron says so succinctly, we can have a joyful relationship with our lives, one that no longer ignores the reality of impermanence and death. To not recoil from the dead deer on the hiking trail, to consciously attend your friend's father's funeral as a lesson in finitude, to see with your whole self the dancing sun on the waves of Lake Harriet, to love your children fiercely even though you have to let them go. This is to drink deeply of the water of life. This is to jump into experience while you are alive. Which brings us back full circle to our opening story. To drink of the water of life, we must lay aside our armor, lay aside the magic robe, lay aside all that we cling to that denies the true harmony of reality and its impermanence. Let love face fear. How else do we find true joy unless we surrender and kneel down and drink from the water of life in its unabridged fullness, albeit a bitter sweet libation. In the words of the 14th century poet, friend, hope for the truth while you are alive. Jump into experience while you are alive. Think and think while you are alive. What you call salvation belongs to the time before death. If you don't break your ropes while you are alive, do you think ghosts will do it after? And 700 years later, Mary Oliver, Mary Oliver resonates. Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life?